Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nathan Birma. Keith Gave spent six years in the NSA during the Cold War, but his most daring mission may have come later, while working as, of all things, a sports writer. In the late 1980s, Gave was asked by the Detroit Red Wings to reach behind the Iron Curtain and initiate contact with the team's newest draft picks, two players on the Soviet Union's famed Red Army Hockey Club. His hazardous quest helped pave the way for an unforgettable era in hockey, one that would eventually feature five former Soviet players playing together in Detroit, leading their team to an elusive Stanley Cup championship. Some sensitive and bizarre details of how the Russian Five was assembled by the Red Wings were never disclosed before Gave told all last year in his book, The Russian Five, a story of espionage, defection, bribery, and courage, and in a documentary, also called The Russian Five, on which Gave is a producer. I asked Gabe how a hockey beat writer ended up writing a real-life spy thriller. Joining me now is Keith Gave, author of The Russian Five. Keith, this is a fascinating book. I'm excited to ask you about it. Thanks for your time today. My pleasure, Nathan. Thanks for having me. Uh, it's, uh, it's, uh, kind of, it's a pretty decent story, isn't it? I've had a lot of secrets buried for a long time. I'm, I, with this book, I was finally able to uh, get a lot of stuff off my chest and uh, tell a pretty good story, I hope. Well, speaking of secrets, you have one of the most interesting stories of what you did before sports writing, of any sports writer I know, and that is that you worked as a Russian linguist for the NSA at the height of the Cold War. I suppose there's a lot you can't tell us about your work, but what can you tell us about what you did before the events of this book? I can tell you that uh, the only reason I wound up doing that was to stay out of Vietnam. I was drafted in December of 1970 by Richard Nixon, and at the time, everybody being drafted was going to Southeast Asia. I didn't want to go there. Uh, I had too many friends uh, who I lost uh, or came back uh, kind of messed up, and uh, I didn't want any part of it. So rather than be drafted for two years, I enlisted for four on the condition that they send me not to Southeast Asia, but to Monterey, California, uh, to Russian language school for six hours a day, five days a week for a year that I studied Russian, and then I, I, I didn't know what on earth I'd wind up doing with it. They needed, they needed Russian linguists, and I had a friend of mine who had done that in the Air Force, and I kind of raised my right hand and volunteered for that. And uh, after a year of language school, they sent me to an intelligence school, a, a spy school down in Texas, spent about six months there, and then they shipped me off to West Berlin back when the wall was still surrounding the city, uh, basically working in a building like something uh, out of a James Bond movie uh, with all, a lot of satellites and antenna uh, and so on. Uh, worked in a darkened room with lots of exotic equipment. It was an NSA facility, uh, state-of-the-art spy station at the time. This was 1973. And my job was to help keep track of the bad guys on the other side of the wall. And it was that background that led you to the beginning of this story of the Russian Five in 1989 after the Detroit Red Wings drafted Sergei Fedorov and Vladimir Konstantinov. Shortly after that, 
Jim Lights, who was a front office exec with the Red Wings, then the son-in-law of owner Mike Illich, asks you to dinner and makes an unexpected request of you. What did he ask you, and what was your initial reaction? You know, it was pretty bizarre. You know, I, I got, got out of the Army after six years and uh, wound up in a roundabout way. Again, no, no real planning on my part, but I wound up in the newspaper business. Uh, and after several years as a news reporter, I wound up at the Detroit Free Press, again, a year on the city desk. And then in 1985, uh, I, I went to the sports desk to cover the Red Wings. And uh, four years later, lo and behold, they start drafting Russians, uh, Soviet players uh, from behind the Iron Curtain. In June of that year, 1989, they drafted, uh, they made history really by drafting Sergei Fedorov in the fourth round, the highest a Soviet-born player to ever been drafted. And they took a flyer on, uh, on a guy who, was, uh, who has succeeded Slava Vitisov as captain of the national team, uh, Soviet national team and the Red Army Club, Vladimir Konstantinov. And then, uh, you know, about a month, uh, six weeks later, Lights invites me to lunch at the Elwood Cafe. At the time, it was across the street from a little, or from uh, the Fox Theater that the family had just renovated, and uh, asked me if I would be interested in doing them a favor. And I, my first response was, Jim, I'm not in the habit of doing favors for the, uh, you know, the, the, the hockey club that I cover for the Detroit Free Press. You know, it's kind of, there's a line there that I'm not supposed to cross. What, what do you have in mind? And, uh, and he laid it out. He said, as you know, we drafted these two Russian guys. I said, yeah, I wrote all about it for the Free Press. He said, well, you're the only guy I know who speaks Russian. You know our team. You know the game. You know the league. And we found out that these guys, that the Soviet national team is having a, a, a kind of a training camp in Helsinki or in Finland, and they're going to play a game in Helsinki on this particular night in uh, early August. We were thinking that you might go over there after writing a letter for us uh, uh, to, to Sergei Fedorov and Vladimir Konstantinov that we want to help them defect and come over here in Detroit and play hockey. And uh, right away, I put my hands together like a, like, you know, a T formation, like a timeout. I said, Jim, there's no way on earth I can do this. I work for the free press and I, you know, I can't do a favor like that for you. It would, you know, it's, it's just highly unethical. Uh, and I could lose my job and I like my job. I, I don't want to, you know, put myself in jeopardy. So, well, he, uh, he said, we're willing to pay a lot of money. And I, I kind of laughed a little bit. Said, I don't care how much you're willing to pay me. Never got to uh, an, an actual number uh, that the, he was willing to pay me to do that. But he did mention six figures. And I know where that number starts. At, and, and I knew at the time as a uh, sports writer on a meager salary at the time in 1989, that was life-changing kind of money. And I, I still said, no, Jim, I, I, really, I really can't do this. And he said, okay, enough said. I thought I'd give it a shot. But, you know, Nathan, I went home and I started, you know, mulling it over and thinking about it and thinking about it. I'd read, I'd read enough uh, uh, books by journalists from like the New York Times, Washington Post and AP and so on who've been over there uh, who had, uh, you know, covered the, the news out of the Soviet Union for two or three years. Uh, and, and, you know, so not often, but occasionally at least they find themselves in the middle of passing messages back and forth from various operatives from intelligence units, KGB, CIA, and so on. Wittingly or unwittingly, sometimes they're in the middle of these things. And I said, you know what, maybe, maybe I, I can do that. And I called Lights back. This was a few days after we had uh, we met for, for lunch. And I said, there might be a way we can do this. He said, how's that? And I said, first of all, I'm not gonna take a dime. I don't want any of your money. I'll pay my own expenses. 
I will go, I will go over there. I'll write a letter. I know what you want to say. We went over it again. I said, I'll write the letters and uh, I'll do my best to meet with these guys and find a way to pass along these messages somehow. And, uh, uh, and if I do that, I'll do that on one condition. He, what's that? He said, what's that? And I said, I want to be your first phone call when these guys start coming over here so I can have the news first for my readers at the Detroit Free Press. And he said, deal. And, uh, you know, about uh, probably uh, seven or eight days later, I was on my way to Helsinki, Finland, uh, to, uh, you know, and I'm, I'm probably after six years in the spy business with the NSA, I, I was really on my first serious covert mission. And here I was as a newsman, a sports writer at the Free Press, uh, trying to pass messages along to a couple of very prominent uh, young hockey players. I have to ask you about that trip in just a second, but first, can you give us a sense of the obstacles the Detroit franchise faced in attempting to acquire these players that they had drafted and the obstacles the players faced in attempting to be acquired? Well, you know, the, these guys were, uh, they were behind the Iron Curtain. You know, the Soviet citizens, and not just Soviet citizens, East Bloc citizens, Poland, Czechoslovakia, Romania, Hungary, uh, Ukraine, you name the, the East Bloc country at the time, they, they had, you know, they faced tremendous travel restrictions. They couldn't come and go as they please, like, uh, like Americans and most people in, you know, Western Europe are, are capable of doing, just coming and going as we please. They couldn't do that. And they especially put the clamps on their, uh, on, on their elite athletes, the gymnasts and the, you know, hockey players and so on. And, uh, uh, you know, the, so the wings, they were so bad for so long. And they were kind of burning daylight trying to build a team around Steve Eisman. We're talking now 1989. It was six years after they drafted Steve Eisman. They had some limited success in 87 and 88. They miraculously got to the uh, Stanley Cup semifinals a couple of years, only to be uh, destroyed by the Edmonton team led by Wayne Gretzky. But, you know, th- th- but they, they knew that they weren't building a team fast enough. And uh, Eisman was uh, – uh, was now in, in his prime. So they took a shot at uh, drafting some Russians. They knew where the great players were, and they uh, they took a chance on, on drafting these guys. And uh, like I said, they made history with Fedorov taking them in the fourth round. A lot, a lot of teams were drafting Soviet players, but you know that, at the time it was a 12-round draft, and they were getting them in the ninth, 10th, 11th, 12th rounds. They'd take a flyer on a guy. Um, anyways, uh, so you know the, the players – couldn't come and go. The Red Wings couldn't just draft these guys and sign them and bring them over like they could. Swedes, Finns, people from now from Switzerland, Denmark, Germany, wherever else they're 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 bringing hockey players over from now. Uh, they couldn't do that in, in places like the Soviet Union and Czechoslovakia. Now remember this too, Nathan. Uh, in 1980, actually the year they drafted Steve Eiserman in 1983. In the fifth round, they drafted a guy named Peter Klima from Czechoslovakia. Again, behind the Iron Curtain. In the summer of 1985, the Wings, uh, in relatively dramatic fashion, which I talk about in the book, uh, helped uh, him defect uh, from the, the Czech team was in Germany at the time. They helped him helped him defect from 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 where he was in Germany into the United States to play hockey for the uh, Detroit Red Wings. So they, they cut their teeth on a, on a Czech player, a pretty good player, Peter Klima. Uh, uh, so they kind of knew how to, what they had to do with the, uh, with immigration and naturalization. Uh, they knew what the laws were. They knew who, who the key players were in Washington. 
Uh, Mike Illich had a lot of money, knew where to spread it around to to get something like that done and done quickly. So they kind of cut their teeth doing that. Now, that's why that's what gave them some confidence if they drafted these Soviet players, if there was any if there was ever a chance to get a message to them to let them know that the Wings were interested in helping them come to North America to freedom to play hockey in the best league in the world. Uh, they kind of knew how to do that. The, 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 their critical problem was how do I get the message to the, these players? And that's where I came in. All right, so off you go to Helsinki. The story of the trip is quite a story in itself, but what happens is you draft painstakingly a letter in Russian to Sergei Fedorov. You say your Russian at that point was more rusty than, than you had hoped, so it was not an easy letter to draft, but you stuff the letter in a Red Wings media guide, which is like a yearbook, and you have some other Red Wings souvenirs, and uh, you go to the arena, and after the game or practice, out of the locker room steps Sergei Fedorov and Vladimir Konstantinov with their Russian handler close behind. Set that scene and what transpired in that moment when it was all riding on your shoulders. Yeah, it was kind of a. Uh, it was. It was. I didn't even realize it at the time. I was a little bit nervous. Uh, uh, I, maybe the the hardest thing was uh, actually sitting down and crafting a couple of letters uh, to both uh, Konstantinov and Fedorov. Uh, I spent a lot of time with my nose buried into a Russian-English dictionary, but my language skills were certainly good enough uh, to, to, to do that. And uh, the uh, letters were each a couple of pages long, and I, you know, when I folded them up, they stuffed them in this little five-by-eight book. I, they weren't as concealed as I would hope they were. They kind of stuck out. And I, the one thing I was worried about, I was less worried for me than I was about those two young players what if they get caught with these messages? That's what I worry, worried about most. But I didn't have much of a choice. My job was to get them the messages. So I, you know, I got to the Helsinki airport, uh, landed, and it was about, it was about four, almost four o'clock. I would, I needed to find out where a hockey game was in this large city of Helsinki, and uh, somehow get there uh, in time. For, not only find out where the game is, but get there, and then once I'm in the building. Uh, arranged to interview these guys and, and, uh, and, and then pass along the message. And I, I kind of felt like I should be hearing the, uh, the music to mission impossible in the background. Cause it's a little bit how I felt, but I found somebody at the airport who pointed me out to the arena where these guys are going to play. There's a hotel right across the park from, uh, from the, the rink there. And, uh, I hopped in a cab, went to the hotel, checked in, took a quick shower, saw my bed there that looked really comfortable and I've been up for more than 24 hours straight and I'm pretty tired and I wanted to take a, you know, a little power nap but I was I I did not I I uh, hustled across the the, uh, the park to the arena and I got there just as the players were getting off the bus to uh to you know play this game just as the Russian players were were arriving and uh got in the building using my my NHL media credential I got in uh, now I'm in the building. I'm walking around the arena. I'm trying to find somebody, a, a promoter, one of the organizers, a sponsor of the event, somebody who I could introduce myself to, show my credentials, and say I'm from Detroit, and the, I'm here to see these two uh, Russian players who were drafted by the Detroit Red Wings. Do you think you could get me down uh, for an interview? And it took me a better part of two periods. And I was getting pretty nervous, Nathan. I, I thought I was going to fail. Uh, just getting, you know, I, was, I, I got this far, and I'm wondering how am I going to get down there. Finally, I ran into a guy. Said, "Oh yeah, we yeah we can do that. No problem." He said, "Do you speak Russian?" And I I fibbed a little bit. I said, "No, I, re I really don't." Uh, he said, "Well, we Finns because we're not right next door to the, you know Russia. We we all speak a little bit of Russian. I can help you." 
And, and I said, oh, that would be great. I said, my, I, my Russian is not very good. Uh, it was better than, it was better than I let on, uh, for him. Anyways, um, he, after the game, uh, they beat the Finns. Uh, Sergei Fedorov was brilliant as you would imagine. Uh, after the game, uh, took me down into this corridor just outside the Soviet dressing room. Not like North America where the reporters get to go in, you just wander around the dressing room and introduce yourself and, you know, start chatting up a player and taking notes for an interview. Uh, they brought they brought both Vladdy and uh, Sergey out. They, they they ripped them right out of the showers. It looked like they both had white towels around their waist and they're dripping wet. And they're you know they got goosebumps all over because there's a sheet of ice right behind us. And uh, I introduced myself as a reporter from Detroit, the Detroit Free Press. I said I don't know whether you know this or not, but the Red Wings have drafted you um, to play on their team someday. And they wanted, you know, I, I said, I, I'm here on behalf of my newspaper to interview you, uh, to write, write about you for my newspaper back home for the hockey fans of the Detroit Red Wings. I said, I understand this is not a really good time for a formal interview. Maybe we can arrange to, uh, to, to I, we can do this by telephone in the future. But in the meantime, and I gave them little lapel pins, you know, little Red Wing lapel pins, business cards from everybody. And I showed them on the sheet of Red Wings draft choices in 1989. I said, Sergey. There you are, right there, number four, 74th overall in the fourth round. Sergey didn't show one one hint of emotion either way. Just it had that kind of really smug sort of look about him. He would be a great card player because there was no tell there at all. And then I showed Vladdy. I said, Vladimir, here you are in the uh, uh, the, the 11th round, 221st or whatever it was overall. And Vladdy reacted like the little kid who just got the shiny new bike for Christmas. It was real. It was priceless to watch his reaction. And this was the first either well, had heard of that, right? That they were head drafted. Yeah, yes, I found I found out later, much later, that this is the first time. This is way before the internet, obviously, and and the way we communicate today. They had no idea they'd been drafted by an NHL team until that moment. But while all this is going on, Nathan, I see this guy about ten, eight or ten. Spaces down. I had my back to the wall. Sort of he, but he kept leaning forward and watching everything that was going on. Leaning forward, leaning forward. Every time I would pass something along to these guys, he's leaning forward to see what I'm up to. And uh, I noticed, I noticed that Sergey had noticed him too. And so I was being being very careful, but it made, made me nervous. And he was their KGB guy. He was the guy that made sure that none of these guys defected. That everybody who left the Soviet Union, uh, left Moscow, uh, when you know, to come over to, you know, Helsinki to play some hockey games, went back when the uh, 10 days or two weeks were over. And uh, so he was giving me the evil eye the whole time, and I was getting a little bit nervous. Uh, and anyways, I, I, the last thing I gave these guys was a little uh, 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 media guides with the messages in them. And, you know, and I, you know I'm, I'm, again, I'm saying I, I would like to, you know, find a, uh, I, will, I will keep track of your schedule. I will find out where you are. I will give you a call, and we can do an interview. And I noticed at the time, Sergey has got the book down in front of him, and he starts flipping through the pages, and he sees the message that I have in there. And again, very nonchalantly, no hint, no tell, no nothing. He just kind of put the put the book behind him, uh, out of the way, and that's when I that was my cue to get the hell out of there. I uh, uh, basically I said, uh, you know, I, I shook their hands. I said, очень приятно, большое спасибо, до свидания which was, it was a very pleasure to meet you. Uh, thank you very much for your time. 
goodbye and good luck in the future is basically what I what I told them in pretty good Russian at the time. And, and so, you know, sort of surprised them and surprised the guy who was doing the translating for me, too, because I, I, I let them know that my I let him kind of know that my Russian was a little bit better than I'd let on. Uh, but, but anyways, uh, that was, uh, then I, then I just beat feet and got out of there and, and, uh, I spent the next, uh, the next three hours or so just walking around the city of Helsinki all over the place, looking over my shoulder the whole time to make sure I wasn't being followed. I was a little bit nervous about that, but to be honest with you, I was more nervous, more concerned about those kids, uh, you know, they're 18, 19, 20 at, at the time, uh, getting caught with those messages because who knows what would happen to them. Had they had, had they been caught and they were actually starting to act on, you know, what was in those letters. So that was quite harrowing, but that ended your direct involvement in this, and it initiates a long process by which both Fedorov and then eventually Konstantinov do come to America. The actual point of defection, I believe, occurred in Portland, Oregon, uh, by Fedorov. Yes. And when yes. it did, um, you know, the Mission Impossible music should be playing the whole time. But at the moment he actually defected, you describe it as kind of a nonchalant moment, as it was, I guess, later told to you. Can you describe that? Well, you know, it, I, I, the first uh, I'd like to describe kind of the postscript to my part of the story. Uh, I'm uh, I'm at home. I was living in Dearborn at the time, working at the Free, free Press. It's about uh, well, July. I think July was the Goodwill Games, uh, and. Uh, uh, at the time, Ted Turner, uh, Turner Broadcasting, CNN, uh, owned the event and so on. It was it was a big CNN deal. Uh, but uh, my, I'm having dinner in the evening, and my phone rang. And out of the blue again, there's Jim Lights. Uh, and said, Keith, and I said, yeah. I said, it's Jim Lights. I said, hi, Jim. How you doing? Uh, he said, great. Uh, uh, guess where I am? I said, I have no idea, Jim. Where are you? And he said, I'm in Mr. Illich's plane flying back from Portland, Oregon, guess who's sitting next to me? And I said, I give up. He said, Sergei Fedorov. And I pushed my plate away. I got my notebook out. I said, okay, let's talk. And we uh, shot the breeze for, you know, 10, 12 minutes or so. I got everything I needed. I looked, looked, I'm looking at my watch to wonder if I can make the first edition deadline at the, at the free press. And um, uh, I finished up a quick interview with him. I called my desk. And I said, what's going on page one tomorrow? And they said, why do you care? And I said, because whatever you got on page one, uh, I'm going to blow it away. You got, I, I have a better story for you. And they said, what's that? I said, a young uh, Soviet defector is on his way to Detroit to play hockey for the Detroit Red Wings. His name is Sergei Fedorov. And the guy, the, 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 my editor paused and, and uh, paused for a second. He said, you got 35 minutes. And so I hung up the phone and got my laptop out and started uh, – cranking away on a story as quickly as I could. Uh, 35 minutes later, I hit the button and sent it. The next morning at 6.15 in the morning, my Detroit Free Press landed on my doorstep like it used to do seven days a week in the good old days of newspapers. I uh, picked up the newspaper and took it out of the plastic sheath that it was in. There it was, page one above the fold, Soviet defector on his way to Detroit to play hockey for the Red Wings. And the people of the Detroit Free Press uh, were the first people to know about it uh, in, in the world uh, because I, I was able to break that story. Jim Lights lived up to his promise. I had the news first. Two days later, I was interviewing Sergei Fedorov at an ice rink in Oak Park. I think it was Oak Park. And, um, you know, I had another story. And, and from that moment on, everything related to the Russians, uh, you know, Vladdy came the next year and so on. I had the stories first. That was my deal with the Red Wings. 
I had, um, again, back to that ethical dilemma I had, I was a new, I was a, a beat guy making a deal with a source. I, I, I did them a favor uh, for, and I got a lot back uh, for, for my readers of the free press. Didn't make any money on it, but I got a lot of news first, and that's what was uh, important to me. In that moment where Fedorov gets on the plane, he's actually in a hotel lobby and says goodbye to a teammate yeah. and just walks with the exec. It was sort of that straightforward and, and from the outside, yeah, it looked not it dramatic. Was, yeah, well, it was it, it was somewhat dramatic. Yeah, there was some drama involved for sure. Uh, you know, you, you just a Soviet uh, Soviet person, Soviet athlete, just doesn't expect every day. It was a it was a pretty big deal, but it, it had been planned fairly meticulously. I had nothing to do with it. I didn't know that it was coming at all. Uh, but Sergei had a friend uh, that he trusted uh, in the Soviet Union, in Russia at the time, uh, who uh, had some contacts, could make things happen, knew how to make them happen. And it turned out that the guy that he trusted was also another sports writer, a guy who worked for Pravda. And, uh, and Sergei trusted him enough to let him know what was going on. And then this guy took it from there and made the arrangements with, with uh, Jim Lights and 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 uh, and so on, and they they uh, they agreed to. Uh, Sergey wanted to wait to defect until he, his military uh, obligation was over. He was now out of the army. His father wanted him to to reenlist for twenty five years and get the rank of captain, and you know he'd be stuck in Russia forever uh, if that were the case. And Sergey says, "No, I'm not going to. I'm not going to you know stay in the army. I'm going to get out." And that was the smartest thing he could have done. And when that was once his military obligation was over, he was able to. Um, to defect, come here, and not be considered a criminal, a traitor, uh, he wouldn't. Be, he wouldn't have been able to get a work visa anyways if he were still in the military. So, anyways, uh, in Portland, they agreed that this was going to happen. Then, uh, the uh, again, uh, Jim Lights took Mike Illich's airplane out to Portland, and um, with the translator and with uh, uh, you know a couple of other people. Uh, Nick Polano was one of them, the assistant GM at the time, who had uh, worked on the Kleeman defection. Anyways, they went out there, and uh, Sergey, they were all set ready to go. Sergey, you know, he, he kind of walked up to Jim, who was hiding behind a USA Today newspaper, and uh, basically walked up to Jim and said, ready to go, Jim. And Jim closes the newspaper up, and they're leaving. And just as they're leaving, a guy comes out of the uh, out of the uh, elevator near the exit of this hotel that they're in and uh, the guy says sergey where are you going and uh sergey looked at jim lights he said one minute jim and he went to the guy the guy happened to be his roommate uh, uh and uh he was the team masseuse his name is uh Chekmanov. i think it's sergey Chekmanov. he today is a detroit red wings masseuse and equipment guy uh, but anyways, uh, uh, he said, where are you going, Sergey? He said, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm going to Detroit. I'm leaving. He said, oh, yeah, right. He laughed about it. Let's, let's go talk about it over, over dinner. You're not going anywhere. He said, no. He said, I, I promised them I, I would come, and it's time to go. And Sergey reached in his pocket, and he took all the money that he had out of his pocket, and, you know, and rubles and dollars and everything else. I, I think it's about fifteen, sixteen hundred bucks, whatever it was. He said, you take this, and uh, – uh, I'll see you down the road. And he, and he left and they got in the, uh, they got in the limo and the limo driver uh, was nervous at this time. You know, so he knew something was up and they said, what they, cause they briefed them and said, when we get in the car, we're going to have to go to the airport real fast, as quick as you can get us there. And the guy said, look, man, he said, I'm not, 
I'm I'm not looking for any trouble. I, I I'm a little nervous about what you're doing here. Like like Nick Lano explained it, <laughs> they thought they thought they're going to whack somebody. You know that somebody was going to get killed or or whatever. The the limo driver was that nervous, and he said, no 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 no. We just what's going on is we have a a prominent uh, hockey player uh, who's leaving his team in the Soviet Union and he's coming to play hockey for us in Detroit. Just get us there quickly. And lights gave him a you know a hundred dollar tip. They got in the car and uh, they uh, they bolted uh, to the uh, to the airport. And you know within twenty minutes or so it was wheels up and they were on their way to Detroit. And that's when lights called me and said, "Sergey's with me coming to Detroit." You describe Fedorov as one of the greatest players ever to play the game of hockey. What made him so unique a talent on the ice? Well, I I, I truly believe he was, uh, and I you know don't take my word for it. Take Wayne Gretzky's word for it, uh, or any of the great players who played with him or against him. Steve Eiserman, another one, uh, or take Scotty Bowman's uh, uh, word for it. Uh, those are all uh, the Detroit more coach. credible opinions than mine. The Detroit coach who. I wound up putting the Russian five together, but you know th- there was a time if Red Wings fans will remember, and uh, I think it was ninety five, ninety six, somewhere in there. I, I should know the, de- the year offhand, and I don't. Uh, where Sergei uh, actually was moved to defense. There were some injuries on the blue line, and Scotty Bowman moved him to defense, uh, and he played there for about six weeks. Sergei didn't like it very much. You know, he liked to go with the puck a little bit or a lot, and he was real, real good at it. But I remember talking with uh, with Scotty about that because Sergey was resisting, and I'd written a little bit about it. And and I said, how 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 good is he really compared to some of the great ones? He said, Keith, if I kept if we kept him there, if Sergey wanted to play defense, uh, you know, full time, he would be an all star defenseman. He would win the Norris Trophy as a defenseman in this league. He was already an MVP, and he had an MVP trophy, a Hart Trophy. And his Selkie Trophy is the league's best defensive player. And Scotty Bowman is telling me he could win the Norris Trophy, too, as the best defenseman in the league. And I believed it. Now, let's keep in mind, not long ago, a week or so ago right now, Alex Ovechkin became the highest-scoring Russian-born player in the history of the NHL. And there are people out there who want to call Alex Ovechkin the greatest Russian hockey player in NHL history. Give me a break. He doesn't even come close. For 13 of his 15 or 16 years in the in, in the NHL, Alex Ovechkin couldn't find his defensive zone with a compass. He's horrible defensively. He's really good at scoring goals, but he's not a complete player. He wasn't a complete player by a long stretch. Sergei Fedorov could do everything and do it well. What he could do, he could skate backwards every bit as fast and effectively as he could skate forward. There were very, very few people who could do that. And, you know, Scotty Bowman mentioned guys like Doug Harvey, the great defenseman that he coached in St. Louis, and Slava Vitisov, who also had tremendous wheels going backwards, especially in his in his prime, uh, uh, like he, like like a lot of players do going forward. Uh, so uh, Sergey Fedorov had uh, just tremendous skills, and I, I don't I think it, it'll I don't care how many players you're bringing over from from Russia, they're going to have a hard time uh, competing at the same skill level that Sergey Fedorov did for a long time for all of his years in Detroit. There was a time, probably for three or four, maybe five years in, in, in the prime of his time in Detroit, where Sergei Federer was the greatest hockey player in the world, bar none. So let's talk about Konstantinov, who was just as motivated to come to Detroit and play alongside Sergei Fedorov, but it was more complicated in his case because he had obligations to the Soviet Army. 
And uh, I've got to ask you about this story. Um, the the stories up to this point were worth the price of admission for the book. But on top of this, we have uh, bribery to Soviet doctors and a fake diagnosis. What was his fake diagnosis given by these bribed uh, Soviet doctors? And why was that necessary to spring him from the from behind the Iron Curtain to come to Detroit? Yeah, that's a good. It's, uh, Vladdy has the greatest story of them all, um, and it's uh, it's really really quite remarkable when you think about it. Uh, again, because of that, uh, the lack of movement, lack of freedom. Now, let's keep in mind that the, the Berlin Wall fell in 1989. Uh, not long after, the Wings drafted both those guys. Uh, things were opening up. Soviet citizens were starting. They were getting some freedom of movement a little bit, but not not the athletes and certainly not people in the military. I mean, even the American military, people can't travel wherever they want, whenever they want. So, uh, but anyways, uh, Vladimir Konstantinov is now, uh, like I said before, is captain of the Soviet national team, captain of the red army club and held the rank of captain in the Soviet red army. And, uh, he had a 25 year commitment to the military. So he wasn't going anywhere for a long, long time. He, in order for him, like I said earlier about, about Sergey, in order for him, for anybody in the military uh, to come to, to defect, um, as long as they're considered members of the military, with, you know, if they're AWOL uh, and just leave to defect to come play hockey, there's no way they're going to get a work permit uh, issued to them uh, by the State Department uh, to play hockey in, in, uh, in America or North America, as long as he's considered a criminal back in, in Russia. It just it wasn't going to happen. So they gotta, they got to get Sir, uh, Vladdy out of the Army first. And it took a lot of thinking, uh, a lot of um, creative thinking by the same guy, uh, the Pravda sports writer who helped Sergei, uh, is now helping Vladdy, and uh, went to Jim and said, I think I can make this work. I'm going to need some money. And uh, Jim said, how much do you think you need? And he said, I, I, I need about $30,000. I have to work with some doctors. That's what he said. I have to work with some doctors. Work with means bribe some doctors, of course. And uh, so he, he, he uh, it went, lights didn't blink, got the money. The, the guy goes over there and starts spreading money around. And, uh, you know, after weeks of uh, tests and so on, these doctors all agree that Vladdy's got some inter- inoperable sarcoma, a rare cancer. They don't know how to treat. He's going to die. You might as well let him out of the army. And and that was their, their that was their diagnosis. Uh, but the only problem was the Red Army general manager at the time, Valerie, Valerie Gushin, didn't believe him. He wanted a second opinion. He sent Vladdy to a, the Red, Red Army Medical Center, a, me, a medical hospital, uh, all military, some of the best doctors in the Soviet Union are there. They are now poking and, and around at Vladdy, trying to figure out, uh, trying to confirm these other doctors' diagnosis. The, the operative uh, that, the, that had arranged, uh, had spread the first batch of money around to these other doctors, went back to lights and said, I'm going to need a little bit more money. Uh, the, uh, the, Vladdy is in another hospital with more doctors, and uh, I'm going to need another $30,000. And Light says, okay, no problem. We'll get it. And he said, but I need something else, too. And uh, Light says, what's that? He said, one of the doctors wants a car. He wants the biggest American car they make. So Light said, 
okay, if that'll do it, the lights went out and bought a big old Chevrolet Caprice. It was a huge car, big boat of a car, a new car, bought it, had it shipped over to, uh, to Moscow last year ever saw of it. Uh, but it wound up in the hands of a doctor and, uh, uh, Again, the money gets spread around. The doctors all confirm the original diagnosis that Vladdy's got cancer. You might as well let him out. And uh, so they, too, you know, took the money and uh, said what they had to say to let Vladdy out. Now, he's, he's out. They're ready to come to Detroit, right? They're going to get on a plane and come to Detroit. That was Right at that time, the, the hard, hardline Soviets, uh, the communists, hardline communists, uh, w- who wanted their country back. They want to go back to the old way. Uh, they hold a coup. They take Gorbachev as, uh, you know, kidnap the, the president of the, of the, of the, uh, of the country. And so Yeltsin, uh, the guy who would succeed Gorbachev, is uh, actually standing on a tank in front of the Russian White House, hundreds of thousands of people around trying to, uh, you know, stare down this coup and, and he, he ultimately was successful. The hardline communists didn't get their country back. The coup failed. Gorbachev is free. Yeltsin succeeds him as president. And uh, now Vladdy is free to travel, right? All well and good. They're ready to go. Now, during this demonstration, Vladdy, Vlad, Vladimir Konstantinov and his agent, a guy, and the guy who's orchestrating all this with, with uh, Sergei and now Vladdy, his name is Valery Madveyev. And uh, these these two guys are in. They're among the hundreds of thousands of people who are demonstrating. They're you know th- that's what the people do in in Russia when uh, uh, and they have for hundreds of years demonstrating against their government. Uh, while they were demonstrating, somebody broke into the car and stole a briefcase. The briefcase containing all the documents, all the forged you know the the, the medical uh, diagnosis, the passports everything that they need to travel, get out of the country, come to America and play hockey for the Red Wings. It's all gone, including about $10,000 worth of uh, in cash that they needed to spread around to, you know, anybody else on their way out of the country. Everything's gone. Uh, and so they're, they're sitting around that night in uh, Vladdy's apartment. He lives there with his wife, uh, Irina, and their daughter Anastasia wondering what the heck we do next. And the telephone rang. It was about midnight, you know, and a voice said, uh, hello, uh, you know, is uh, Ka- Captain uh, Konstantinov, may I speak with him? And, you know, they knew right away it was the, they call them the bandits, the bad guys, whoever stole uh, the uh, the briefcase. And Vladdy took the phone and uh, basically the, the, the guys at the other end said, we've found all these documents. We'll gladly give them back to you. Maybe you have some memorabilia, some hockey sticks, uh, gloves, you know, a jersey, whatever. We'll trade you for those things. Maybe you can sign them for us. So uh, Vladdy says, "Sure, I got. I don't have much here, but uh, I'll meet." And they met at they met at a um, uh, a seedy part of Moscow behind some hotel. In the meantime, uh, they got the agent uh, who was helping Vladdy do this, Matveyev got a hold of a gun also because they, they didn't trust anybody. They got a hold of a handgun, which is really, really hard to do in, in, uh, in Russia even today. But they got a gun and, uh, you know, just to protect themselves, met these people. They had the briefcase. They had all the paperwork. Uh, they asked Vladdy to sign all the stuff that he brought, a couple of sticks and gloves and 
skates, whatever, and uh, hand, they handed over the documents, the briefcase, and they looked in it and says, oh, oh, great, it looks like it's all here. What about the money? Oh, well, we didn't find any money. There was no money there. We just found the briefcase, you know, in a trash area. Well, they got the most important things they needed, the paperwork, all the paperwork, the medical paperwork, the passports, it's all there. Uh, they went back to the hotel, called lights again and said, um, the, the airport's closed because of this coup. So it's going to be, you know, we don't know when we can get them out. And Light said, can you get them anywhere else besides, you know, if you, if you can't fly out, can you take a train? And, and uh, Matveyev said, yeah, I think we can get them to, uh, I think I can get them to Budapest, Hungary. He said, get them to Budapest and we'll be there in two days with Mr. Illich's airplane. I'll bring some lawyers along who know how to, ha- know how to handle the, the, uh, the paperwork and, all, you know, what we need to do. And uh, we'll be out. We'll be out of there in two days. Uh, you know, take us a day or two at the most. So uh, they hopped in a train, crossed the border, went into Hungary, uh, went into Budapest. Two days later, Lights was there with a couple of lawyers. Uh, they did all the paperwork, and pretty soon, Vladimir Konstantinov is on his way to Detroit in a private airplane, same same one I think that uh, uh, that Sergei flew from Portland in. And now they got their second guy, uh, a really important young defenseman who. Uh, who came to be maybe right up there with Steve Eiserman as the most popular player on that hockey team that won back-to-back Stanley Cups. It's an unbelievable story. It's one of the many times <laughs> reading your book where I said you could not make this up. This is unbelievable. You can't make it up. You can't. It's a, it's a, it, this is, I mean, every one of these guys, every one of these five guys is a, is a made-for-Hollywood feature film all by himself. But Vladdy's story is off-the-charts good. I did want to ask you about Slava Fetisov, who you mentioned. He's the fourth Russian player to come to Detroit, along with Slava Kozlov, a talented young winger. Um, and Fetisov, what's in, one of the interesting things about him is he was the one member of uh, the Russian Five, the five Russian players who had come to the Red Wings, who had played on the 1980 Soviet team that was upset huh. improbably by the young uh, U.S. team that went on to win the gold medal. And you note that one of the players on the U.S. team from 1980, Mike Ramsey, would later join mm-hmm. Slava Fetisov in Detroit as a partner on the blue line, playing alongside uh, Fetisov, who was still bitter about that loss and said, if we played you 100 more times, we'd win all 100. And Mike Ramsey said, yeah, you would. <laughs> um, it truly, truly was a miracle, absolutely. But let me ask you about the stature that Fetisov had, both in Soviet hockey and in that locker room when he was acquired. It raised some eyebrows because he was past the prime of his career. What difference did Fetisov make on and off the ice on that team? Fetisov is, uh, you know, Slav Fetisov is uh, is Russian for Gordie Howe. I mean, uh, they played different positions, but that's the stature that uh, Slav Fetisov holds uh, that kind of stature in Russia the same way that Gordie Howe does in D- Detroit. He is probably the most famous athlete in Soviet history, really, um, you know, as a, as a defenseman. He was, uh, and we didn't see him in his prime. He was not even playing uh, regularly with the New Jersey Devils when the Red Wings traded him uh, and brought him to Detroit. But they, Scotty Bowman, Scotty being Scotty, the smartest guy in hockey by a country mile, um, not always the easiest guy to get along with, but I certainly respect him. Uh, he he brought Fetisov in thinking he might have some influence on the three younger guys. Now we got, uh, uh, you know, by by now you got Slava Kozlov who had come to Detroit. Also, you got three young guys, and uh, and, and now you're bringing in a uh, very prominent 
former Soviet defenseman who was captain of the team that these guys all played on as kids. And they look at, they revere him like everybody uh, at the, in that era uh, did with, uh, uh, with Slav Rutisov. And he's the kind of guy, and I, I've seen it happen more than once. These guys are giggling, laughing, whatever, talking, you know, in Russian uh, in, the, in their corner of the dressing room. And, and Patisa will grunt a couple of words and look over him, and you can see three sets of heels just locking, uh, and all of a sudden gets quiet, and uh, they're back to business, these young guys, Sergei and Vladi and, and, uh, and, and Slava Kozlov. Didn't happen a lot, but it happened enough, and I, I mean, I saw it. I saw it happen, and it was pretty impressive. Uh, but Patisov was an absolutely brilliant, brilliant uh, hockey player in his prime. Uh, played some pretty good hockey in Detroit in his latter years, for sure. Uh, I wish people could have seen him in his prime because he was something special. And when the Red Wings acquire Igor Lirianov, it is the completion of the Russian Five, five Russian players on the same NHL team. And the question immediately arises to Coach Scotty Bowman, when are you going to play them all together? And it comes in Calgary in 1995. Mm -hmm. And you were there. You saw them take the ice. Describe that moment uh, when the Russian Five debuted as a unit. It was pretty. It was pretty. Uh, pr- pr- quite amazing, really. We we knew it was coming. Didn't know how soon it would be. But you know, Scotty Bowman uh, know knew better than anybody at the time uh, about Russian hockey. He'd coached against uh, the Russians, the Soviets, in international hockey for years, uh, and admired the system that they played. The one thing he knew that a lot of us didn't really quite understand is the Russians play the game in five man units. It's not three forwards and two defensemen. You mix and match, change at different times, and so on, like they do here in North America. It's five guys. They, they, you know, they all jump over the boards at the same time. They play together for 30, 45 seconds. They come off. Five more guys go on. That's how they play. Scotty Bowman's got five of them now. He's got two great defensemen. Both guys were captain of the Soviet national team, and three unbelievable uh, young, or not two young forwards uh, and a centerman. Igor Lyana was key to the whole ball game. Really, he's the switch that makes them all go. And uh, he threw them over the boards in Calgary. At the time, Calgary was a pretty good hockey team. This was October 27th, 1995. Calgary's pretty good. And, uh, and so is Detroit. Uh, but they, they, they went out there, and um, uh, the, the Wings won the game 3 to nothing. The Russians scored two of the three goals. The... Red Wings outshot Calgary 25-8. to eight. Calgary is, is still a, a, a franchise low. Uh, only eight shots on goal for the entire game in their own building because the Russians had the puck all night long. The Russians had 15 of Detroit's 25 shots. They dominated the game. And you know what? From that moment on, the NHL was never the same. They changed the, the, the arc of history in the NHL forever uh, at that moment. And Scotty didn't play them together all the time, but he played them together enough to drive other teams crazy, and he played them together enough that everybody else on that Red Wings team, Darren McCarty, Brendan Shanahan, Doug Brown, uh, all the North Americans, uh, Nick Lidstrom and so on, they all see what the Russians are doing. They start emulating it. You know, Martin LaPointe, they're all thinking, the puck, it's our puck. Why, why, why give it to the other team and let them play with it? Let's, let's keep it all night long. Teams hated to play the Detroit Red Wings. I went to, 
I went to Dallas after uh, after I, I, I spent a lot of years in Detroit. Went down to Dallas when they had a pretty good team down there. Uh, I covered the team that won the 99 Stanley Cup in Dallas. But I remember talking to Ken Hitchcock, the coach at the time down there, said, we hated to play Detroit. Hated because they never let us have the puck. And it, it was it, it, this. you heard from that point on, you hear today, uh, puck position, puck position, puck position. The puck possession game of hockey was invented by the Russians. They brought it to the NHL. They showcased it in Detroit. Everybody started copying it after that. And they're still they're still playing that way. The the best teams. And you write about how possession is in fact possession in passing is in fact the key to the whole mindset of the Russian five. And as you say, it had a ripple impact. And the dominant approach in North American hockey at that time, as you write, was dump and chase. You fling the puck forward as far as you can. You relinquish possession in exchange for having the puck move deep into enemy territory. But then you have to go get the puck back. And the Russian Five said that's the based on their development in the Soviet system, that's the worst possible idea. We'll hang on to the puck, we'll pass it, and you won't have a chance to touch it. Yeah, I, it, it, I, I don't know how the... Uh... Uh, the game uh, of hockey went from the way they used to play it in the 40s, 50s, and 60s, which is quite similar to the way the Russians played the game. It was a slower pace, of course, um, and uh, a lot more physical in the NHL than it was in, uh, in, in, in Soviet hockey. But, you know, I remember talking about that, um, that whole dump and chase thing with uh, Gordy Howe up in the press box at Joe Louis Arena. And he said, Keith, I, I don't get this whole, you know, chip and chase, dump and chase, whatever you want to call it. Why, you know, you, you, you throw it deep in their zone, but then you have to go back and, you know, get, throw somebody into the boards, fight to get it back again. Why, why do that? It doesn't make any sense. It didn't make any sense to the Russians. And uh, so they didn't play that way. And uh, they, they brought that style back to Detroit. And um, it was beautiful to watch. Uh, uh, so, you know, <laughs> I find I consider myself grateful, very, very grateful to be able to watch that quality of hockey night in and night out at uh, at Joe Louis Arena or wherever rink we, rink we were at at the time. Uh, it, it was it's a beautiful game the Russians played, that's for sure. So with the Russian Five as a key part of their team, the Red Wings finally get over the hump after 42 years. They win the Stanley Cup in 1997. And there's a beautiful moment you describe uh, where Captain Steve Eiserman, after receiving the Stanley Cup, hands it off to Slava Fetisov and Igor Larionov as a tribute to all that they had been through and all that they meant uh, to Russian hockey and to the Red Wings. You talk about greeting Sergei Vedorov in the locker room after that first cup in 1997, after the win, and uh, both him mm-hmm. and Konstantinov saying, remember, they said to you, remember, this all started with you, and you were uh, went up to the owner's box to interview Mike Illich and describe his reaction to you and, yeah. the, and the credit he gave to you for, for your role in this story. I wasn't, uh, honestly, Nathan, I, that, that really took me by surprise. Uh, uh, I, I worked, uh, when I worked my way into the dressing room, um, Vladi was the first guy I saw, and uh, he sticks his hand out and I stuck my hand out and he, he's shaking my hand. And while he's shaking my hand, he pulled me into him. I, I, you know, gives me a bear hug with uh, that one hand and, and I'm, I'm, I got my face pressed against his sweaty uh, uniform. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and he, while, I, while, I, while he's got me pressed into him, he's also pouring the remnants of a bottle of champagne over my head. So that was my introduction into a very crowded dressing room uh, that night that they won the first Stanley Cup in 97. I finally worked my way around to the, the room in the corner 
uh, where Sergey is surrounded by beautiful women. Can you imagine that? Uh, and uh, I shook Sergey's hand, congratulated him, and, uh, he's, and, and he leaned over and said, Keith. And I said, yeah. And he whispered, he said, you remember that night a long time ago in Helsinki? And I said, yes, yeah, Sergey, I remember that night. He said, I never tell anybody. I don't tell anybody. I said, that's good, Sergey. That's, let's keep that a secret. And then uh, uh, a little while later, I, I went up to um, Mike and Mary Nilich's suite, and they're throwing a pretty big party out there. They got a little bit more expensive champagne that they're spraying around. 1983 vintage uh, Moe. Uh, they, they bought cases and cases of it uh, back in 1982 when they, when they bought the team. And um, I think it might have been 1982 vintage. Anyways, uh, they saved all these cases up for when they finally won a Stanley Cup. And now they're spraying it around and drinking it in the, that room uh, in that super suite of his. Uh, but Mike finally, uh, he, I finally got a couple minutes of his time. And I put my, again, I put my hand out to shake his hand. And he said, I'm not shaking your hand. Get over here. And he puts both arms around me and give me a big bear hug. And he said, you, he said, you're the guy. And I said, what are you talking about? He said, you're the guy who got me them Russians. He said, without them, we're not, we're not celebrating here tonight. You, uh, I'm trying to remember exactly. He said, I want you to, to, I want you to know how much I appreciate that. You're a big part of this about what happened tonight. You, and I want you to know this and, and I want you to know that I'll never forget it. I, and I appreciate it. And he just was going on. I said, Mike, Mike, come on. Uh, this is your night. I, I, I said, I did what I did, but this is all about you, you know, doing what you had to do, putting together, a, uh, you know, as many good players as you could, any way you could. And that's what Mike Illich did. Spent money, spent a lot of money, uh, a lot of creative effort uh, getting uh, those Russians, uh, the first three of them over here, the young guys, um, to give his team a chance to deliver what they finally de- delivered on June 7th, 1997. I give him all the credit in the world. Uh, him, um, Jim Debolano, who drafted those guys, Neil Smith as assistant GM, and uh, their, their European scout, Krista Rockstrom, who, uh, who, who uh, scouted those guys and so on. They took big chances drafting those Russian guys, and it, it, it took them a little while, but it finally paid off. Uh, but that was, a, that was a pretty special night, i got to admit. But that moment was so short-lived. Just six days after that, uh, there was a players' party, and the players had rented limos to uh, go from that party uh, in case there was some alcoholic beverages consumed. And uh, Vladimir Konstantinov and Sava Fetisov and the team's uh, Russian massage therapist were in a limo driven by an irresponsible driver who got in a very serious crash. Fetisov survived relatively unscathed. How close did Konstantinov and the Russian massage therapist come to actually losing their lives in that tragic event? Well, too close. Uh, I'll tell you, it was, we, uh, you know, Nathan, that, that was a tough, uh, tough moment. And every time I think about it, um, it, it sort of brings me back to that moment and brings me down a little bit. Uh, that, but that night of June 7th, 1997 was pretty incredible when Eisenman, uh, gave it to, uh, Fetisov and Fetisov said, uh, Igor, you come with me, you know, we do this together and together the two old Russians skated the, 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 uh, Stanley cup around, uh, the ice at Jolo Serena. I gotta tell you, I had a little bit of a tear in my eye because I know what, you know, how hard these guys had worked to get from where they were, uh, buried behind the iron curtain to now at the top of the uh, top of the pyramid uh, when it comes to success in the game of hockey, the Stanley cup. Uh, and, uh, you know, for Detroit fans, 42 years 
We all waited for this team to come back and win another Stanley Cup. They finally get it. Six days later, the, the team has a golf outing. It's their last outing together. And, uh, yeah, there was uh, quite a bit of alcohol uh, uh, consumed that day, that evening. Um, the, the players knew that. Uh, they knew it was their last hurrah with the Stanley Cup. So it, uh, rather than uh, be irresponsible, they uh, rented a bunch of limousines and had the limos uh, take them there and, and take them around as they uh, tried to, you know, the plans were to have a nice day at the golf course, have a nice dinner, and then uh, uh, go from uh, watering hole to watering hole and uh, spread the joy around the city with the Stanley Cup. Uh, but, they're, you know, after, the, after a day of, uh, of uh, a long day in the sun, the three of the Russians, Fetisov and Konstantinov and the massage therapist, Sergei Manatsikhanov, um, decided they kind of had enough. They wanted to go home and at least take a breath, have dinner, and maybe catch up with the team a little bit later on. They got in, the, got in their limo, headed back from, uh, from the golf course. They're driving along Woodward Avenue, and uh, you call them an irresponsible uh, limo driver. I have more harsh, uh, harsh description of, of that guy. Well, let's say it. He had a record, and he uh, didn't have a license, he and he fell asleep at the wheel. And he only got a year yeah, he, he, in yeah. jail. It's infuriating. It's absolutely infuriating. Um, yeah, he fell asleep at the wheel, uh, tired. And this was uh, this is you know eight or nine o'clock. I mean, it's not it's not even all that late. Uh, but you know, you know the in in this guy, you know, because of the airbag, he, he kind of he had. You know, bumps and bruises. He walked out of the hospital. He didn't didn't, didn't even keep him. Uh, Sergei Manatsikhanov and Vladimir Konstantinov uh, both suffered uh, severe closed head injuries. Uh, doctors gave both of them that night and for the next ten days or so. They gave both of those guys about a ten percent chance of surviving. Period. Uh, both did. Uh, Sergei Manatsikhanov uh, confined to a wheelchair. He's paraplegic. Um, he, he, uh, he's okay. Um, his mind is not quite the same way, same way, same way with Vladdy. Uh, Vladdy, um, can get around with a walker, uh, at public events, he'll be in a wheelchair, but he can also get around in a walker. Uh, I saw, saw Vladdy at the, uh, premiere of the, um, of the Russian five documentary film that I had a chance to be involved in. And, uh, you know, every time Vladdy sees me, he sticks out his, uh, hand and says, Oh, Keith, Keith, you know, and he's got a big smile on his face and he, and he extends his hand and, um, you know, it gives me a nice firm handshake, just as firm and strong as the night that he won the Stanley cup there in June. Uh, but in, and you know, I'd say a few words to him in Russian, a few in English, and uh, smile, post for a picture, whatever. Uh, and Vladdy, Vladdy remembers all those good times way back when, but he can't remember five minutes ago. He has no short-term memory at all. So he has a real difficult time uh, with that part of his life. But otherwise, because he was such a strong man, so the strongest man I've ever been, been around, really, uh, he survived when it, when, an accident that would have killed most of us. And uh, he's making the most of it. And... Uh, still as beautiful a human being as I've ever met in my life. Uh, I, I, I cherish every minute that I get to be around that guy. Despite this tragedy, some of the other Russian players were determined to bring the Stanley Cup that summer 
to Russia. And you went on that trip. Uh, tell us, first of all, the reception that the players and the cup itself received, and also some of your own observations returning to Russia after what was this, uh, eight or so years after the fall of the communist regime, yeah. what had changed? Yeah, uh, it, it was it was pretty cool. Um, you know, the uh, the it was Fetisov. It was on the on the very night that they won the Stanley Cup in Detroit. Fetisov walked up to Gary Bettman, the commissioner of the league, said, "You know, Gary, uh, it, now I have to take the cup to Moscow and share it with the people there. This is a big deal for Russian people. We have five Russian guys on this team." We got to take the cup over there, and Bettman says, "Oh no, absolutely not! It's way too dangerous. You can't take the cup over there, sir." And 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 Patisa says, "Oh no, Gary, we're 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 going to take the cup there. No, there's no, there's not even a debate about that." And uh, sure enough, in uh, uh, in August, about right about two months later, uh, the Stanley Cup was on its way to Moscow, making a historic visit. It had never been the, the cup had never been to Moscow before, and now you got. Um, uh, 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 Fetisov, Larionov, and Slava Kozlov all um, uh, traipsing uh, around uh, Red Square and, and <laughs> uh, in front of that famous church, San Basil's Cathedral, and, uh, uh, and you know, a few more steps to Lenin's tomb where they set the, uh, set the cup up and had, you know, took uh, pictures there and so on. What struck me uh, there on, on that, it was a Saturday morning, I believe, in, uh, on Red Square, a little cool for an August uh, day, but these guys are these guys are walking around with their Red Wing sweaters on. The three of them, Sergey was with uh, running around with Anna Kornikova at the time, and Vladdy, of course, was still fighting for his life in uh, hospital in uh, in Michigan. But uh, these three guys are, are you know walking around with Stanley Cup, and I, I I I saw the the faces on the Russian people, looking you know recognizing. Fetisov, you know, they whisper, oh, look at the, at the Fetisov. This is Fetisov here. It's you know, Slava Fetisov. And here is Irorianov, you know. Lirionov is the Wayne Gretzky of Russian hockey, by the way. Uh, both of them. It's like you, you, to see Fetisov and Lirionov walking along Red Squares is like seeing for a Detroit fan, Gordie Howe and Steve Eisenman walking down this Woodward Avenue in Detroit. Um, so uh, lots of recognition. Then you got the young guy. Uh, Slava Kozlov, they don't know much about him other than he, he was one of those uh, uh, famous uh, Russians who played with Detroit, uh, you know, and uh, so and here's the other thing is that the Russians loved everything about Detroit. It was their team. The Detroit Red Wings was their team. Um, it was soon enough after the fall of the, uh, of the Iron Curtain and so on uh, in the the, you know, lots of Russian players are going to North America and playing now. Uh, a very, very, very different country, Russia, from the former Soviet Union. Two different countries, really. Uh, and they loved everything about Americans. And it was just a really, really, really good time. Now, I went over there uh, uh, again in uh, December 2014 making this, um, this film about the Russian Five. We interviewed Sergei over there, who was then uh, uh, general manager of the Red Army Club that he defected from, Slava Tisov, who's a uh, senator in the Russian parliament, and Slava Kozlov, who then was an assistant coach of Spartak, one of the club teams. Now he is the head coach of, of Voskresensk, where he uh, uh, grew up playing hockey. Uh, so we interviewed the three guys over there. But it's a very different Russia in, nine, in uh, 2014 than it was in 1997 when I went over there uh, they don't like Americans so much over there, as you'd expect, uh, 
based on the stuff that you hear about the international politics, global politics, things that are going on between the United States and Russia these days. Um, not very friendly at all compared to the time I was there in 94 and then again in 97. Uh, the Russians are some of the uh, nicest, greatest, kindest people. I love the Russian people, uh, but politically, uh, times are difficult again and it really reminds me right now what's going on between the united states and the soviet union or russia uh the same kind of uh, feeling that i had in the 1970s when i was working at that intelligence site uh, in the middle of the cold war uh and there was lots of uh, anger and distrust and um so on between the the, the two countries um it's very different now than it was very special time in 1997 when these russians helped uh Detroit win the Stanley Cup. I did want to ask you about that. This is not a political book and it's not a political interview, uh, but watching things play out in international politics the last couple years, and you know it even struck me that your fateful meeting with those first two Russian players occurred in Helsinki, which was also the site of a controversial summit between the leaders Mm -hmm. of the U.S. and Russia last summer. Um, What are your observations? What are your reactions as you see what's happening there is a friendly relationship between the two governments. Just how friendly is the subject of a special counsel investigation? Uh, what's your reaction to this based on your experience in the Soviet Union, well, in Europe during the Cold War and having been to the Soviet Union since then? Well, I, I have to be really, really careful what I say. Uh, I do have strong opinions. Uh, uh, you know, part of it, part of how I am as a person, uh, uh, some of it has to do with my time in the uh, in the military and, you know, my distrust of foreign governments and so on. But a lot of it has to do with 40 years in the newspaper business. You know, I was a uh, I, I, I was a I've always been skeptical and now I'm a full blown cynic. Uh, I, I question everything uh, as I was taught to do as a newsman. Uh, it's a part of myself I don't really like all that much. But, you know, the the. Uh, the night of the election, this past election, when uh, somewhat of a surprise outcome uh, in that election, I, I, it was it was it was stunning to me how how it came about. And the first thing I said, and I only have my wife as my witness, but I said to her the next morning, I said, "You know what? I can't help shake the feeling that the Russians were involved in this somehow." Wow! And she gave me that she gave me that look, like, "What are you talking about?" I said. I can't even really explain it, but I think something is going on here. Maybe, maybe it, maybe, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I mean, that's what that special counsel investigation is about. I just, um, you know, based on everything I've seen in the news since then, and uh, it, it kind of looks that way. Uh, but you know, we have to deal with it. You know, Vladimir Putin uh, was a was a it was a KGB agent. I think he was in East Germany when I was in West Germany. We were there at the same time working on opposite teams. And, uh, you know, he's very, very, very good as a KGB operative who rose to, the, to, uh, to you know, to run that country. And uh, he's, he, there's no question what he's trying to do. He's trying to put, you know, rebuild the Soviet Union again. He's, he's encroaching on other countries around the per, per, per perimeter again, trying to uh, uh, build a buffer around uh, his country again. Uh and he wants it the old way, and so do a lot of you know Russian people. Uh, so 
I, I don't trust anything that man does right now. I don't, I, I don't trust him like I didn't trust Khrushchev in the, in the 60s or uh, you know, Brezhnev in the 70s. It, it, we have to be very, very wary and skeptical of what's going on in that country right now, what they're trying to do. I really don't think it would be nice if we could be allies and friends like it seemed like we were going to be in, in the 1970s when all that good was going on you know, with, uh, you know, Detroit and the Russian hockey players and so on. But I'm really, I'm back to being very, very skeptical and worried. I'm, I'm very worried about the Russians these days, much like I was in the 60s and 70s when we were all worried about, uh, you know, nuclear war, for God's sakes. Well, Keith, finally, let me ask you about the documentary that you mentioned. Um, and your publisher of your book is involved in producing this documentary. Uh, tell us, first of all, about your role in the documentary. And we should say it's had uh, a limited run in some Michigan theaters. Uh, I understand there are ongoing negotiations about possible wider release, so we won't ask you to disclose anything. And I guess that's ultimately out of your hands in terms of a wider release. Um, but what was your role with the documentary and uh, other opportunities that doing this documentary gave you to uh, to talk again with uh, some of the key players in this story? Yeah, I, I, I will say that it was uh, the book is really uh, it, it was made possible by my involvement in the uh, you know production of this film. I got a call probably in 2012 or 13, uh, way back when six years ago probably now uh from a young guy who uh uh found me uh after talking with jim lights uh he knew jim lights had uh you know was had a big part in bringing sergey and vladdy over uh and, and thought he would uh want to do a project a, a documentary film about the russian five and lights as well you know you got to talk to keith gay first he was in the middle of everything uh he's the one who kind of got it all going and uh, start with him, and, uh, and we'll go from there. But uh, so the, the the kid called me. His name is uh, is Joshua Real, uh, who wound up directing uh, this documentary film. And it was uh, my role as a producer and a writer, uh, along uh, in interviewing all these guys of four of the five Russians, of course, and lots and lots of other people uh, along the way. Uh, and it was those in depth interviews that I had with a lot of those people. Uh, throughout the process that really helped me flesh out the pages of this book that I wrote. So they kind of came in hand in hand. The book was pr uh, published on March 20th and 22 days later on April 11th of um, 2018, the movie premiered. It's only been shown at film festivals, uh, a handful of fe festivals. It started out at the Detroit Free Press Film Festival on April 11th. Uh, and later uh, over the summer, it was at the Traverse City Film Festival, Michael Moore's Film Festival, went out to Seattle at the Seattle International Film Festival. It was in uh, Montreal and I think Windsor. Uh, but everywhere it's gone, it has won the Audience Choice Award for the festival, which is, which is kind of cool. Even Seattle, which was a little bit surprising because it's not even an, an NHL town. But, well, it is uh, now. Not, not yet, anyways. <laughs> it, it, yeah, is it is now. It is now. But, but, but anyways, uh, so I, I, I owe uh, a, a debt of gratitude to the folks who made this film to give me everything I needed, help give me everything I needed to write the book. Uh, at the same time, I, I, I gave them a part of the movie that was sort of crucial as well. So I figured it was an even trade. I, 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 was, I had that uh, fairly significant role in, uh, in, in helping uh, 
uh, the early part of getting Sergey and, and Vladdy over here. Uh, but yeah, the, the, the film itself now uh, should be, I, I'm waiting for an announcement real soon. I don't have any details and I wish I did or I'd share them. Uh, but very, very soon, I'm thinking in early March, we should get an announcement that the film is going to be available in film in, in theaters around Michigan at some point when I'm not sure. Uh, but after that, uh, I know they're, they're also negotiating with uh, uh, some of the big guys out there that have content on TV that um, it may wind up on, on. I don't even want to mention any of them right now because people will only hear what they want to hear. Uh, and I don't want to I, I don't want to give it make it sound like I'm giving any misinformation away. But uh, I, I, I believe it eventually it'll be available for download on iTunes and and a, and the a, a DVD one day down the road, but I expect very very early in the springtime. Let's put it that way: that it'll be available in theaters around Michigan and maybe around the Midwest and maybe even Canada. That's all being worked out right now as we speak. Just no firm dates yet. Well, Keith gave the book is the Russian Five: A Story of Espionage, Defection, Bribery, and Courage. Keith, it's a riveting book, a riveting story. For for me, I was watching in Michigan those Red Wings teams get over the hump, win a championship, then win multiple championships after such a long drought in Detroit, and seeing the Russian Five, seeing that they were changing the game, enjoying watching them, but without an, an idea of everything that had gone into how they actually came here and came together. And a lot of this story has never been told before, and you tell it. So thanks for telling this story, and thanks for joining us today. It was my pleasure, Nathan. Thank you very, very much for having me. Keith Gave is the author of The Russian Five, a story of espionage, defection, bribery, and courage. He was a sports writer for the Detroit Free Press for 15 years. I'm Nathan Birma. You've been listening to New Books and Sports, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.